like to welcome you up to this morning uh, worship and also to welcome for those who are on uh, online. Let me pray for us before it begins. Oh gracious God, may the words of my mouth, Lord, and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. May your spirit be here directing us, teaching us, and leading us into the truth that is to be found in you. We pray all this through our son's name. Amen. Now, I, I grew up in Singapore and in the 70s, and uh, during the 70s, the hottest action movie star was Bruce Lee. I don't know whether you all know him, but he, he was a very famous uh, action movie martial artist. And that's a movie that he made called Enter the Dragon. And in that movie, there is a very iconic kind of a moment there. And that's where he is instructing his pupil in the art of fighting. And he makes this statement that fighting is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all the heavenly glory. So it's like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't focus on the finger or you will miss all the heavenly glory that it is pointing to. You see, in our sermon series on the one and only Jesus, we have so far been examining the signs of Jesus. The crowds that follow Jesus see the sign, but they are so focused on the sign that they do not perceive what the sign is pointing to. They do not see what is signified by the sign. And in missing the significance of the sign, they miss the glory of what the sign was pointing towards. They miss the glory that is to be found in Jesus. And in today's text here, in today's text, in the feeding of the 5,000, we also see the same thing. And if we see the crowds here focusing on the sign of the physical bread, they, they do not see the significance of what the physical bread is pointing towards. That Jesus is the spiritual bread, the bread from heaven, that he is, has come to satisfy our deepest desires. So today we are taking a look in terms of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle in the four Gospels that are to be found in all four Gospels. It is the only miracle that is to be found in all four Gospels. And how each author places the miracle then helps us to determine what is the main focus of that story for the Gospel writer. And for the Gospel of John, John has placed it in chapter 6 here, and by placing the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, John tells us that Jesus is a gracious host that can satisfy our deepest desires because he himself is the bread from heaven. He is the gracious host that can satisfy our deepest desires because he himself is the bread from heaven. Now, the way that I'm going to go about it is that I'm going to explain the story, or I'm going to explain the story, I'm going to draw out the main idea, the big idea, and then I'm going to end with some applications that are pertinent for us today based on this text. 
So the story here then takes a look and begins like this. In the story, there are basically about four parts of the story. There's the setting, the question, the hospitality, and the response, and we go through that, and I'll kind of tease out a little bit and explain the text, all right? So it begins here with the setting. Now, after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee was also called the Sea of Tiberias, and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover Jewish festival was near. Now it begins with after this, you know, that which is kind of a loose connection with what happened in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He healed, remember, he healed the disabled person who was lame for about 38 years. And there was this controversy here with the Jewish leaders because he was healing people or he was working on the Sabbath. But now we see that he is now back in Galilee. He's no longer in Jerusalem, but he is back in Galilee. And it says here that he crossed the Sea of Galilee. In crossing the Sea of Galilee, you know, he's probably moving from this, the more Jewish area to the lesser Jewish area, which is in Bethsaida. So he's moving from this area to the city of Bethsaida there, and it's somewhat significant of Bethsaida because Philip is from Bethsaida and that will play a little part in the overall story here, all right? He is sitting there, and he now crosses the sea over there, and what we do find now is that here, in crossing over there, Jesus is basically, sees this crowd here following him because they saw the signs. The crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs. Now, usually the language of following indicates some kind of discipleship. But in the Gospel of John, discipleship is not indicated so much by following, but by perseverance, by remaining, by abiding, by continually believing. So being a disciple of Jesus is determined more by a journey, a continuous process. It is not static, but rather dynamic. It is not so much in terms of making a single decision, but in terms of following here. And here the crowds were following Jesus because they saw the signs that he had done, but they only focused on the miracle. They were following Jesus because of miracles. They were not following Jesus because they wanted to obey him. Rather, they were just fascinated by the miracles that Jesus had done. They did not see the glory of God in Jesus. And at the end of chapter 6, we will see the crowds abandoning Jesus because the things that Jesus has to say are not palatable. They are rather too hard to swallow. So we see them here that even though they are following, but yet they are not truly following Jesus. Now, this John goes on to here to say that now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. And the Passover here the reader will recognize that this is an echo to the first Passover when Moses led Israel out of Egypt in the wilderness here, in the Exodus here. And we'll see that the crowds that follow Jesus later identify Jesus to be a prophet like Moses, and they also want him to lead them out of foreign opposition, out of foreign oppression. And so this is somewhat the kind of the setup that the author is leading us into. So this is the setting here. 
Now, next then comes the question that Jesus asked Philip. So when Jesus looked up and he noticed this huge crowd that was following him, the language of looked up here is that he lifted up his eyes. And it occurred again in chapter 4 when Jesus was telling his disciples, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are ripe for harvest. It's a very unique phrase that occurs earlier in chapter 4. And so Jesus is here, he looks up, and he sees the crowds that are following him. And in this, looking up here, you know, that and seeing the crowds that were following him, Jesus is then telling us that he sees the crowds that are following him, they are pressing towards him, not so much as a nuisance, not so much as a bother, but rather as an opportunity to harvest a crop for eternal life. To harvest a crop for eternal life. Jesus looked up and saw the crowds that were following him and saw that as an opportunity for the harvest for eternal life. And it raises the question for us, you know, that do we see the people that God has placed in our life as a nuisance, as a bother, as a drain on our resources, or do we see them as an opportunity to share with them the good news of eternal life? Some of y'all do know that uh, the last couple of weeks, the last couple of months have been very busy for me, and because I'm trying to settle the affairs of the brother of my late wife, and at the same time to help provide care for the mother of my late wife. Unfortunately, when my, the brother of my late wife passed away, his affairs were not settled and is somewhat of a disarray, and we are trying to disentangle all of them, and it has caused me a lot of sleepless nights and hours in terms of trying to settle things straight here. But one of the things that I'm praying for is that Jesus would use me as a credible witness that I will not see this as a, somewhat as a nuisance, but that I will see this as an opportunity to harvest a crop for eternal life. And I'm praying that God would use me to be a credible witness here to demonstrate the love of Christ to the family of my late wife here. And I do pray that for all of us that when we are encountering situations where people are pressing on us for help, that we too may not see that as so much as a nuisance, but rather to recognize that that is indeed a harvest for eternal life, just as what Jesus himself saw. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he asked Philip. Why did he ask Philip? Because Philip was from Bethsaida. Philip knew the local situation that was there. He knew the local circumstances. And so he asked Philip here, but he asked Philip, you know, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked Philip to test him. Jesus wasn't really asking for image information because he already had a plan in place. And Jesus is to test Philip's faith and that of the other disciples in order to prepare, prepare them for other tests to come, not least the test of the crucifixion that is still yet to come. And so, how does Philip answer? Philip answers saying that 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little bit. A denarius is basically a, a day's wages of a laborer. And he says that it's not going to be enough, you know, that. Philip 
fails the test that Jesus has set for him because Philip was only thinking about economics and about natural world itself. Now, how many of y'all have planned a major event? You know, really, really big event. Lots of people. You know, some of y'all have done that, all right? Now, if you're planning a major event, you know it's very important to have a good event planner, right? It's important to have a good event planner. My wife, Karen, has a good friend who's an event planner for a global law firm. And when she's planning an annual event, you know, that brings in all these lawyers from different parts of the world, the budget has a lot of zeros in it, all right? has a lot of zeros in it. So Philip here, Jesus' event planner, you know, for the 5,000, he sizes up the situation and tells Jesus, no can do. It's not in our budget. We can't afford it. Even if there were multiple Costco warehouses in Bethsaida, we will hit the credit limit of our credit card. We can't do it. We just don't have the money to feed so many people. You know, the text later goes on to say that there were 5,000 men. That's just only men. So if you include the women and the children, you could imagine that there were more than 10,000 people, probably about 15 to 20,000 people. Imagine trying to plan for an event at the spot for 10,000, 15,000 people. All right? It's somewhat impossible, you know, that. So he said that not even the 200 denarius worth, you know, eight months wages is going to be sufficient to give everybody just a small little morsel here. Now, Andrew pipes up, and then what does Andrew say, you know? One of the disciples, Andrew Simon here, Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fishes. But Andrew fails the test again. What are they for so many people? Barley loaves here... Barley is usually the kind of the substance for the poorer people because the richer people prefer wheat. And when you think of barley loaves, you shouldn't think about the Panera, the chaff loaf kind of bread, all right? But the barley loaves are probably like little, little buns here, small little barley buns, just for a mouthful. And then the two fishes, all right, it's small fishes. They're not like the big chaff foot uh, salmon that Pastor Craig showed us about uh, two weeks ago, all right? But they're probably like uh, sardines, all right, about this big, and they're probably pickled, probably uh, either dried here. So they're not going to be substantial for, I don't think they'll be substantial for me, all right? So not less to say about substantial for about 10,000 people here. So Andrew fails the test too. But let's see what Jesus does, all right? And we come here with Jesus in terms of being the hospitable guest that he has here. Jesus said, have the people sit down, and there was plenty of grass in that place. So they sat down, and the men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers, that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over, by those who had eaten. Jesus tells his disciples to have the people sit down, and after giving thanks for the food, he basically distributes it to the people, and the people 
eat as much as they wanted. Now, in this whole story here, Jesus functions as the consummate host. Jesus functions as the consummate host, the gracious host. Notice here, he feeds them before there's any mention that they are hungry. He feeds them before there's any mention that they are hungry. As a gracious host, Jesus knows what the people need before they articulate it. In the same way, Jesus also knows what we need before we even ask him. He knows our deepest needs before we even ask what, tell him what we do need. So one of us think here, Jesus feeds them before any mention that they're hungry. Secondly, notice that Jesus himself is the one who serves the food. Notice, he distributed it to them, not the disciples, but Jesus himself distributed the food. And Jesus is introduced a few verses later as a king, all right? But rather than being served as a king, Jesus humbly serves food to the crowds. He's a food server. He's a waiter in the very banquet that he holds. Now, uh, my daughter, Anna, it's working as a food server as a waitress at Brookdale Senior Living Home, all right? So it's a home for seniors. And because the memory of some of the residents there are failing, when Anna delivers the food that they ordered, some of the residents claim that Anna brought the wrong food, all right? At other times, it's a little bit hilarious, you know, because some of the residents want their chicken quarters roasted until it's really black until it's dry and really black here. So being a server is not glamorous, it's hard work. Now the crowds in John 6 were probably not that picky. They were probably not requesting a slab of butter with their barley loaves, nor were they requesting that their small sardines be grilled or blackened, all right? But nonetheless, the story here demonstrated Jesus' humility. For in Jesus' days, you know, slaves usually function as waiters at banquet. And so Jesus, as a consummate host here, humbly serves them. But yet Jesus is also the consummate host because he provides more than they need. He provides more than they could ever, ever want. A good host always has enough food and there should be left over at the end of the meal to indicate that your guests are able to have as much as they want. Do you remember what happened in chapter two, the bridegroom, the wedding, and how the bridegroom ran out of wine? Nothing like this happens here in John chapter six. Jesus as the consummate host graciously provides abundantly more than we can ever desire. So that when they collected the leftovers, they filled shelf baskets here. All right, they filled shaft baskets that were full. The miracle that Jesus does in the Gospel of John here is a sign. It's a sign that reveals God's glory in Jesus. It tells us that Jesus is God's bona fide representative. He's God's bona fide representative. It informs us in terms of what Jesus can and will do. 
Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is then explained further in the rest of the chapter, which Pastor Tim will basically uh, do in about two weeks. But in a nutshell, this feeding of the 5,000 tells us that Jesus here, this feeding of the 5,000 tells us here that Jesus is the bread from heaven. The feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus does here tells us it is a sign. And this sign is pointing to something greater. This sign is pointing to the glory of Jesus. And this sign is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the bread from heaven. Just as physical life is derived from physical bread, Jesus as the bread from heaven gives spiritual life. Just as physical bread gives rise to physical life, so also the bread from heaven gives rise to spiritual life. Just as we eat physical bread in order to be sustained physically, we need to eat the bread of heaven in order to be sustained spiritually. But now you're going to ask me, what does it mean to eat the bread from heaven? What does it mean to feast on Jesus? And it goes on, and then the chapter here later explains that for us in verse 35 to 40. Notice here the key passage that Pastor Tim will touch about in about two weeks here. I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And here it goes on to say, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day here. Eating the bread of life, eating the bread from heaven, feasting on Jesus is metaphorical language for coming to Jesus. It is metaphorical language for believing in him. It is metaphorical language for seeing the son for who he truly is. It is metaphorical language for putting our trust in him. It is metaphorical language for remaining in his word. Eating the bread from heaven, eating the manna that is from heaven, is nothing more than believing in Jesus and trusting in him. So this is what all the sign is pointing towards. The feeding of the 5,000 is pointing to the greater sign of the glory in Jesus, that Jesus is the bread from heaven. But what is the response of the crowds? We then see it in the next couple of verses here. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they saw the sign physically, but they did not see the sign spiritually. When they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this truly is a prophet who is to come into the world. Now, Jesus' miracle in feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness recalls Moses feeding the Israelites in the wilderness with manna. And that's why the crowds there now claim that Jesus is the prophet who is to come into the world. Because the language of the prophet who is to come into the world recalls, Deuteron recalls Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. In chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, Moses said that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet 
like me, that is like Moses, from among your brothers, and you all must listen to him. So the prophet who is to come into the world is not just any prophet, but a prophet par excellence whom Moses prophesied that God will send into the world. So the people, the people here rightly believe that Jesus is a prophet that Moses foretold, that Jesus is the new Moses. But the problem lies here precisely because that instead of listening to Jesus, which Deuteronomy 18.15 tells us that we are to listen to the prophet like Moses, instead of the crowds listening to Jesus, they begin to voice their own ideas of what Jesus should do and should be. So instead of listening to Jesus, they are beginning to reconstruct what they want Jesus to be. And so when we take a look back at the text here, it says that when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, notice that? The crowds were beginning to say, I know what he is like. He is like Moses. He is like a liberator. He is like a redeemer. So we're going to make him like a king and that just as Moses liberated Israel out of Egypt, so also you are going to liberate us out of foreign oppression, out of Roman rule. And so they begin to voice their ideas here. All right. So the miracle that Jesus performed in multiplying the fish and the bread is a sign. The people saw the sign, but they did not truly see what the sign pointed to. They understood the sign only at a physical level. They did not see the spiritual significance of it. They did not see the glory of God in Jesus. They only saw him as a human leader. Yes, Jesus is a prophet that was foretold in the Old Testament, but he's much more than any prophet, and he's much greater than Jesus. You know, Moses spoke to God face to face. Moses spoke to God face to face as a friend. But Jesus is continually in the presence of the Father. And he radiates the face of God. Remember, Jesus said, everyone who sees me has seen the Father. Everyone who sees me has seen the Father. So Jesus is a prophet that is foretold in the Old Testament, but he's much greater than any prophet and much greater than Moses. Yes, Jesus is a king. The crowds got it right. Jesus is a king. But Jesus is not a king of this physical world. So that when Jesus was talking to Pilate in chapter 8, Jesus told Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. So his kingdom is not to liberate his people from the tyranny of Roman rule, but to liberate them from the tyranny of sin. He came to earth on a kingly mission not to provide physical bread, which can never satisfy, but to provide spiritual bread so that whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. During the time of Moses, the Israelites ate the manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Jesus has come to give us true bread so that we may feed.
feed on it and live forever. You see, Jesus has come to offer us the wonderful hospitality of God. He has come to be the gracious host who abundantly satisfies our deepest desires. And more than 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked Philip this question. Where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Jesus now asks you the same question. Jesus is now asking you the same question. Where will you buy bread so that you may eat? Where will you buy bread so that you may eat and be truly satisfied, so that your deepest desires can truly be satisfied abundantly? Do not be like Philip who says, we can't afford it. Do not be like Philip who says we can't afford it. Because, you know, the admission ticket, the admission price for God's buffet. How many of y'all like buffet? I like buffets, all right? <laughs> but God's buffet of spiritual life, the admission ticket for God's buffet of spiritual life is free for all those who come. Isaiah 55 1 says, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. And even the same author of the Gospel of John in Revelation, he says, you know, I will freely, freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. So the admission ticket to God's buffet of spiritual life, that is costly, all right? But this cost has already been paid by someone else. It has been paid for you by the death of Jesus and Jesus died so that our deepest desire might be satisfied in the eternal life that he gives. So where will you buy bread that you may eat and be truly satisfied so that your deepest desires can be satisfied? The answer should be clear. It is to Jesus that we should come. And this leads us then to the central idea of our passage here. And that let us come to Jesus, for he is the gracious host who abundantly satisfies our deepest desires. Let us come to Jesus, for he is the gracious ghost who abundantly satisfies our desires here. Jesus is able to satisfy our deepest desires because the food that he provides is true life. The food that he provides is eternal life. The food that he provides is eternal life. For you see, eternal life, it's not so much about the quantity of life. It is not so much that we live or that we exist forever. But eternal life is really about the quality of life. It is life in the age to come. Eternal life is life in the age to come. The Jews in Jesus' days kind of divided history into two periods, the present age, 
with all its mess, with all its oppression, with all its injustice, with evil, with impurity, the present age, the old creation, but yet they also believe that there will gonna be a future, the age to come, where God, the God of creation, will intervene and set things right, where there will then be true righteousness, true justice, true joy, and true peace here. But the thing about John's gospel here is telling us that that life in the age to come, that life in the age to come, that eternal life where justice is present, where justice prevails, that life into age to come with the power of the new creation has landed like a meteorite in the present age while this present old creation is still rumbling on. And all of this happens through the work of the person Jesus Christ. It all happened through the work of the prophet like, who is like Moses and through the work of King Jesus. You see, Jesus mediates life in the age to come. He makes that life in the age to come available to everyone right now. And we participate in that resurrection age, in the age of the, to come here in eternal life by participating in the life of Christ through eating the bread of heaven, through coming to him, through believing in him, through abiding in him, through remaining in his word. Wouldn't you want a taste of what that life is like into age to come right now in the present? You see, Jesus is able to satisfy our deepest desires because the food that he gives, the food that he provides, the eternal life that he provides, is because the words that he speaks is ultimately true words, the words that are able to give eternal life here. And it's therefore telling us, let us therefore come to Jesus, for he is a gracious host that can truly satisfy our desires. Now let me just end with some with three applications here. The first thing, don't settle for spiritual junk food. All right, don't settle for such junk, spiritual junk food. Uh, junk food, I know we all love them, all right? They taste good to the senses for a while, but they provide fleeting satisfaction and it lacks deep spiritual value. What are some examples of spiritual junk food? Finding our self-worth in our achievements, finding happiness in our possessions, finding security in our financial portfolio, such things can never satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. What are the deepest desires of your heart? What are they? Are they the desire for meaning? The desire for purpose? The desire for fulfillment? The desire for significance? The desire to be loved? The desire to belong? to be in a relationship, the desire to experience joy. All of these desires are satisfied in the life of the age to come, in eternal life. And only the bread of heaven, only Jesus is able to satisfy the deepest longings of a heart. So don't settle 
for junk food. Rather, come to Jesus for the bread from heaven that is able to satisfy the deepest longings of a heart. Don't settle for junk food. Secondly, there is a right way and a wrong way to eat the bread from heaven. There's a right way and a wrong way to eat the bread from heaven. The wrong way to eat the bread from heaven is exemplified by the crowds. They understand something true about Jesus, that he is a prophet like Moses, and that he is a king, but their faith is false because they want to make Jesus according to their own understanding. They want to domesticate Jesus, to control Jesus, so that Jesus does what they tell him to do. But the proper way to eat the bread of heaven, the proper way to receive him and to trust him is to let him tell us who he is, to let him be the king, instead of cre us creating Jesus in our own image and our own ideas, we humbly let scripture inform us of who this Jesus truly is. And so that the right way to eat the bread of heaven is to let Jesus truly rule in our hearts as king, rather than we making Jesus to be the king we want him to be. And that we have to let God be God, rather than we make God in our own image. So there's a right way to eat the bread of heaven and a wrong way. Let us eat the bread of heaven in the right way by letting Jesus be the king that he truly is. And finally, we need to eat the bread from heaven daily. We need to feed on Jesus daily. That is, we need to turn to him, to trust him, to hope in him, to follow him, to love him, to believe in him on a daily basis. We need to do this on a daily basis. And in the Gospel of John, genuine faith is not a one-time profession of faith, but a continual trust in Jesus. It is not static, but it's dynamic. And so each day, we humbly come before God and say, Lord, I need your son each day. I need your son today. And let me pray for us. And let me pray for us now in asking Jesus and asking God to give us Jesus on a day-by-day -day basis. Let's pray, right? Lord, we need your son this day. We need to feast on Jesus. I need to feast on Jesus. I need to turn to him this day, to trust in him, to hope in him. I need him to satisfy the deepest desires of my heart, to satisfy the insecurities of my heart, to calm my fears, to calm my inadequacies, to give me purpose, to give me significance, to help me sleep through the night. Give me a taste of what it is to live in the age to come, even though I'm so stuck in this present world order. Help me, Lord, not to be distracted by things that can provide temporary relief. Rather, give me the life that is only to be found in Jesus. Give me Jesus.
Amen.